0: In the 2007 Herschel Lecture, Professor Phil Diamond from the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics talks about activities at the observatory and research that is exploring the furthest reaches of the universe. I'm Chairman of the William Herschel Society, Francis Ring, and I'm delighted that we have this special event which we hold every year with special thanks to Bath University. Now, I'd like to introduce our chairman this evening. We're particularly pleased to have Sir John Enderby, who's a fellow of the Royal Society and just uh, completed as president of the Institute of Physics, and uh, he's going to take care of our proceedings this evening. So, may I please ask you, John, to introduce our speaker? Thank you, Francis. Good evening. Well, we're very lucky indeed tonight to have uh, Philip Diamond uh, from the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics uh, as our speaker at this, uh, as Francis said, this joint meeting between the Herschel Society (coughs) and the University of Bath. Now, sort of people of my generation will remember very well uh, 1957. 57, of course, was the year when the Sputnik was launched. Uh, and uh, that had a major impact on Jobbredo Bank, not quite as you might think, uh, because if it hadn't been launched, who knows? I think Bernard Lovell, who's a, as you know a local, a local boy, uh, would have gone to jail, uh, because his uh, uh, his the budget was overrun by uh, forty thousand, I think it was, something of that order, uh, and he was hauled before all sorts of committees and. and uh, and then, of course, the Sputnik was launched and, he, and the Jodrell Bank was the only facility that could, could track this. And immediately, of course, the money was found and he became uh, a, a hero of, of, of British science. Uh, and Of course, um, uh, many, many other activities have been carried out uh, at, uh, at the centre, at Jodrell Bank. Um, and I think we're going to hear some of those tonight from Philip Diamond. So I'll hand over to Philip now. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Sir John. It, it is a pleasure to to be invited here this evening. Um, as Sir John has just indicated, uh, Bernard Lovell is a is a local boy. Um, so when I told him last week that I was coming down to give this uh, this lecture, he was he was very pleased that. Uh, that this was where I was coming. Um, as you're aware, the, the telescope at Jodrell Bank is, is 50 years old, so it's, it's actually quite appropriate for us to be celebrating this, this event. Uh, it's been a very busy year for us at Jodrell. We've, we've had a, a series of events, and I'll try and give you a flavor of some of the celebrations that have occurred uh, at the end of the talk. But what I want to to tell you about this evening is um, some of the history of the telescope, uh, history of the construction, some of the discoveries that have been made there, uh, and then spend the the last 15 minutes or so telling you about some of the the science that the telescope has achieved, and also tell you about how we're moving into the future. Because uh, wonderful instruments like the Lovell Telescope don't last forever. We think it still has uh, uh, several years in front of it, maybe 10, 10 plus years uh, as a, uh, a front rank scientific instrument. But we also have to plan for the future. And so that, uh, that, that future is embodied in my title there. So although the telescope is 50 years old, activities at Georgia Bank uh, stretch back to December 15, 1945. Uh, now, Lovell was, um, when the, the Second World War started, w- was drafted into, with, with many of his colleagues, into working on radar. Uh, he, in fact, he spent the whole war working on different aspects of, of radar. But even on the very first day that uh, he, he was, uh, the first day of the war, when he was watching uh, the, the primitive radar scopes that they had at the time. He saw some unusual phenomena, which uh, he couldn't explain. And uh, he and his colleagues uh, saw this many times throughout the war, but of course, at that time, their, their priorities were elsewhere. They couldn't, uh, couldn't find the time to, to go and investigate this. But Lovell was determined to do so, and he suspected that what he was seeing were the radar echoes from uh, meteor trails. So when the war ended, and he went back... Uh, as a, as a senior lecturer to the University of Manchester, uh, he appropriated an army radar. That's what you see in the, uh, the picture here. Um, and he, uh, he, he actually set, uh, set the radar up on the campus in the University of Manchester. But uh, there was too much interference there from the Manchester trams. Uh, and so he, he wanted a, a quieter location. And the university had its botany department uh, the, the botany department had some land at a, a small place called Jodrell Bank, south of Manchester. And so Lovell p- persuaded the, uh, the registrar uh, that he could go down there for two weeks. And they sort of forgot about him. And uh, we, we've been there over 60 years now. But this is a, a view of how Jodrell had begun to grow. This, this is in the, uh, in the early 50s. The, the Lovell telescope eventually sits down here. It, it doesn't exist at this point. Um, but you, you can see some of these buildings, they, they still exist. Uh, believe it or not, we're act, we actually built uh, receivers for the Planck spacecraft in, in, in this building. Um, but uh, some of these facilities are looking pretty old now. But the, these huts and, and, and the, the various buildings around the green there all play a part in the history. Of Georgia Bank and, and the, the various developments that went on there. Lovell very quickly realized, though, that the, the small army radar dishes he had were, were not adequate for the research that he wanted to do. So they said that he and his colleagues set about building a much larger telescope. And the first telescope, large telescope they built was a, a 218 foot telescope. Uh, it was a transit instrument. Uh, the, the telescope didn't look Like a telescope, anybody would would uh, at that time um, imagine such a thing would look like. It was uh, wires strung together on poles with a in a a circular in a a circle with a diameter of 218 feet, and it was actually steered by tipping this pole backwards and forwards, so they could uh, watch the sky go overhead and had some steerability. Now, this telescope made one very important discovery. It saw radio emission from the Andromeda galaxy, M31. And uh, this was the first time that radio emission had been seen from any object outside of our own galaxy. People like uh, Grote reber Karl Jansky and Grote reber the, the pioneers of radio astronomy, had seen the Sun, they'd seen the galactic center, and a couple of other galactic objects. But the radio emission from Andromeda was incredibly weak and it needed a large telescope to discover it. But Lovell was not satisfied with the restrictions that uh, this, this telescope put on, on his capability to observe. And he came up with the concept of a large steerable dish, 250-foot uh, diameter steerable dish. And he got together with... Uh, an engineer, Charles' husband, from a, a consulting engineering consulting company in Sheffield, and uh, husband developed the design based on uh, Lovell's uh, specifications. And this is uh, one of the conce- this is the concept that they originally came up with. There's a famous blue book that we still have at Jodrell Bank uh, with, with a telescope like this. Now, at that time. Lovell was only planning on observing at at fairly long wavelength, uh, electromagnetic waves with with wavelengths uh, of meters or more. And so he didn't need a solid reflecting surface. He could use a a mesh because to a a long wavelength uh, photon, the mesh looks solid. Uh, But all this changed uh, because during the war, uh, the Dutch physicists had predicted that the hydrogen line would have a that hydrogen would have a, an emission line at twenty one centimeters, and this was discovered uh, in the states uh, in the early fifties, and so they they had to redesign the telescope for this much shorter wa- to detect this much shorter wavelength emission, and so the, the concept of a solid reflecting surface was born. This was all uh, nineteen fifty 1950 to nineteen fifty two, and in, in fifty two. Lovell had the money to start the construction of the telescope. I'm going to take you now through a few images showing uh, this construction process. Uh, So so what you see here is the the laying of the the railway track because, as you'll see a little bit later, the telescope uh, was designed to move in azimuth on a a twin railway track, and then it moved in elevation with uh, some special... uh, special elevation access equipment, which I'll also show in a moment. Um, I gave this uh, the, the same lecture to the University of Manchester alumni last night, and four gentlemen from Scunthorpe uh, drove all the way over to, to hear the lecture, and I had a 20-minute chat with them afterwards. and They were actually involved in the, uh, the construction of the telescope, and they told me that it was the, largest, that the last of the large riveted structures it, it really did stretch the engineering capabilities of the time, in the 1950s. So a real monument to uh, to engineering science. In fact, they they showed showed me an article in one of these magazines that you you see at the end of Have I Got News for You. It was called Nuts and Bolts, uh, and it was a magazine of uh, the of the company Chorus, the, the big steel company. <clears throat> so this this is the uh, the Allidade at the the centre. The whole telescope rests on this, and this is uh, what the, 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 uh, the bearing, really, on which the telescope turns. So, it's a very solid piece of engineering there. And you can see the structure starting to rise, uh, with actual with cranes being built on the structure as it went up. So, it was a, it was a massive job. And I, I really think it was one of the biggest engineering jobs post-war in, in the U.K., so here's another picture. You can see uh, that the telescope beginning to take shape. The allade is down in here. Here's the uh, the 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 uh, the, uh, the, the bogies sitting on the rail track. And here you can see the elevation axis starting to appear. This is 50, just over 50 meters above the ground. And uh, Lovell was a uh, was a great believer in doing things as uh, inexpensively as possible. And, and these, these things are recycled, actually. They're the, the 15-inch gun turrets from HMS Royal Sovereign and HMS Revenge. So they're, they're, still, they're still up there, being put to very good use. You can now see the, uh, the backing structure for the bowl be uh, beginning to appear. And uh, this, this is a picture from up on the structure where you can see the, uh, that, that backing structure uh, visible. With the, uh, d- down here, the, this was where the, the place where the, the focus tower was rising. Now, I just want to draw your attention to these two gentlemen over here. Note the, uh, the health and safety uh, <laughs> policy that's being followed at that time. No hard hats, no harnesses. One slip and, and they 're off. Uh, it gives me kittens to think about about that, but th- this this was the way it was in those days and i 'm going to show you a little movie in a moment, which uh, is, is also it looks quite frightening really. so this is the rail track. these are the uh, the bogies This has been incredible the the, the the telescope was over engineered uh, the, these these wheels. We had the first problem with the wheels this summer, 50 years after they were built. They, they, they have half-inch metal tires around each, each wheel, and one of them cracked. Um, it was a 30,000-pound puncture repair, but uh, um, it, it once in 50 years isn't bad. We didn't have any spares either, so we, we had to get, get it specially manufactured. So here you, you you see that this this must be uh, a picture from 1956. You can see the telescope. I mean, it's recognizable structure. Now, you can see the uh, the solid reflecting surface appearing. The, the focus tower is there. Uh, I mean, it's it, it's it's looking real. Uh, and one, one of one of my staff members actually has uncovered uh, a whole series of these these pathé newsreels uh, documenting the the construction of the telescope and the early space age. Uh, And if you come to the Georgia Bank Visitor Center now, you can watch these things. Uh, They're a really excellent uh, historical record. This is Lovell's team. These are the the scientists and uh, the engineers who were responsible for the design and also for the early discoveries uh, made with the telescope. And we at Georgia Bank, and I I think uh, Astronomy in general owe a tremendous debt to this group of people. So this is a a picture I, I believe from early 1957. You can see the telescope is essentially complete. Um, I don't believe it actually moved in azimuth at this at this time. But what's interesting is that the uh, the 218 foot transit telescope is still there. I, I had actually. I didn't realize this. I thought that telescope had been demolished as the level was being built. But it's interesting to see both of them uh, in in juxtaposition there. And this is the Mark I, as it uh, was in 1957. Uh, Clearly moved in in elevation. In fact, it moved in azimuth before that. So that that was what was eventually built. And this is the, uh, the, the control room at that time. In fact, we have refurbished the control room in 2002. Uh, These things don't exist anymore, so it's all done on a a plasma screen with uh, uh, modern electronics. But we still have the control desk. The controllers insisted that we we keep that link to the the heritage. Uh, Again, it's all modern electronics behind the, uh, the facade there. Uh, But I I was really pleased that we did keep it. So it it looks very much like it it does in that picture. Now, as Sir John indicated, um, Lovell got into tremendous amount of of trouble, uh, financial trouble. He'd gone way over budget. Um, There were all sorts of government committees uh, looking at at his uh, financial planning uh, he was only interested in building the telescope, and he knew he was taking risks. Uh, and there was uh, a chance that he was going to be prosecuted and end up in, uh, in prison. And I know it was a very stressful time for him. Uh, but now I think we, we all remember that uh, a miracle occurred. And that miracle came from Russia. Um, the, the Russians launched uh, Sputnik 1 on 4th of October, 1957. Uh, Sputnik itself was emitting a a radio signal, a beep. Uh, And that could be heard with with, with very primitive equipment. Um, But uh, what was interesting is that it was launched, Sputnik 1 was launched with the world's first ICBM, Intercontinental Ballistic Missile. Uh, and this, of course, was of great concern to, uh, to the Western uh, military, Western governments. Uh, <clears throat> the morning that the that Sputnik 1 was launched, uh, as the story goes, the, uh, the scientists and engineers were gathering at a bus stop in Alderley Edge to go out to Jodrell, And the discussion on the bus uh, went in the direction that you know, we could detect the radar echo from this thing. But the problem was the contractors had all left the site. They'd downed tools because they weren't being paid. Um, and there was this, this cloud hanging over Lovell. But when they, uh, when they arrived at Georgia Bank this morning, a deputation went to sea level and persuaded him that this was something that could be done. So the contractors were persuaded to come back on, on to the site. And there was a crash program of installing a radar system onto the telescope, a transmitter and a receiver. And they did it in a week. So from just moving in azimuth under computer control on October the 1st, Sputnik being launched on October the 4th, on October the 12th, they detected the, launch echo, the, the, the radar echo from Sputnik. Absolutely fantastic uh, achievement, I think. And that's a picture of, uh, of Lovell on the day Showing the the radar echo um, to to the press, and of course he then became the darling of, uh, of I suppose it was the Ministry of War at that time. We we didn't defend ourselves; we went to war, um, and uh, the the financial problems that that Jodrell had were were temporarily uh, relieved. They didn't actually go away uh, until sometime later, when. Uh, Lovell uh, had a conversation with Lord Nuffield, who asked him, how much do you still owe? What what, what is the problem? What is the debt? And Lovell told him, and Lord Nuffield at the table just pulled out his checkbook and wrote a large check. And in fact, the the observatory became known as the Nuffield Radio Astronomy Laboratories for uh, several decades after that. The the space, space race continued and for, for some time, the, the Russians were, were clearly the leaders, or, or the Soviets, I suppose, as they, as they were then. Luna 2 was a, a spacecraft that crashed into the surface of the moon, but the, the Lovell telescope was able to, to track it. Uh, but the, I think the most impressive achievement was Luna 9, which actually uh, made a soft landing on the moon's surface and sent back the very first pictures of the, the, the lunar surface. Uh, this was in the late 50s, I believe. I'm not sure of the exact date. Uh, what was interesting on this was um, Lovell upset the Russians because the, the signal was sent back, and the Geodrol Bank scientists recognized the format as being a Telefax format, translated it, and the picture appeared in the Daily Express before the Russians uh, had decoded it themselves. Uh, But in fact, that didn't really spoil relationships. What what, what happened after that was Lovell would get uh, secret telefaxes from the Russians uh, (coughs) providing him with the the coordinates of their spacecraft because they couldn't track them as well as as Lovell could at Jodrell Bank. This uh, spacecraft tracking, we no longer do. Space agencies now have much superior equipment to, to do their own tracking. And so, uh, really, from a, about the early early to mid-70s, uh, we, we, at Georgia Bank, uh, we just did research only. Whereas before that, there was a mixture of spacecraft tracking and research. However, we are still called upon occasionally when, uh, when a big dish is needed to try and uh, detect a spacecraft whose signal has been lost. NASA have lost two. Uh, spacecraft around Mars, which unfortunately unfortunately, we didn't find. And of course there was uh, Beagle 2 um, Christmas uh, of, of three or four years ago. Uh, it was supposed to land on Christmas Day on the Martian surface. It, it probably did land, but not in the way that uh, ESA and Colin Pillinger would have liked. Um, and we spent a week looking for the signal uh, the the, the, the trans, transmission from Beagle 2 up to its mothership, Mars Express, which was at 401 megahertz. And uh, we found absolutely no evidence of, of that signal, which was a shame. Now, this is a list of the, uh, some of the major achievements of the Lovell telescope. I don't expect you to read them all. I'm not going to go through them all. It, I just wanted to show you the length of the list. It's uh, It it, it is very significant. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the the role that the telescope played in the discovery of quasars. I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the the role that the telescope still plays in uh, observing pulsars. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, very long baseline interferometry. Uh, I should tell you that we nearly lost the, uh, the telescope in 1976. It it underwent um, an upgrade in 1971, where that single wheel girder was uh, replaced by two wheel girders. You'll see some modern pictures in a moment. And a new surface was put on the telescope in in 71. But in 76, the the winter of 76, um, there were some violent storms, and a wind speed of 93 miles an hour was recorded at George Bank. And what happened is, wh- whenever it gets windy, whenever it's above about 30 miles an hour, uh, we, we point the telescope at the zenith because otherwise it, it acts like a giant sail. Uh, but at the, even at the zenith, there are still uh, significant forces on the telescope. And what happened was, this, this gust of 93 miles an hour shifted the telescope uh, a few inches, and the wheel girders nearly came off their supports. Uh, the controllers called Lovell at home. And explain explained the situation, and he told them to turn the telescope 180 degrees in azimuth. And they did that, and the next big gust blew it back on. <laughs> now, I must admit, if the controllers called me now and asked me to make such a decision, I'm not sure I could do it. But Lovell knew his telescope. He really knew every aspect of it. So uh, he saved it. Uh, that would have been embarrassing, I think, if we'd lost it. I'm going to talk a little bit about um, Merlin as well, uh, which is the, uh, the other array that the, the other major scientific instrument that we have at Jodrell Bank. We don't only ha- only have the Lovell. In, in total, the university owns nine radio telescopes, and the operations of Merlin are funded by STFC. So, I just want to tell you a little bit more about the uh, recent happenings on the Lovell telescope. In 2002, we received um, a grant of £2.2 million from the Joint Infrastructure Fund to upgrade the telescope, and that was needed because that surface that was put on in 1971 was looking pretty awful. Um, To be honest, it was sort of a British Leyland-type surface. Uh, uh, It it was welded to the the backing structure, and water had got in, and... uh, It was rusted, and and it just looked horrible. It was dangerous. It was decaying. And unless we replaced the surface, we would have had to stop using the telescope. But we got the money to do this. And so a two-year program, it happened over two summers, because it's quite unpleasant working up there in in winter, uh, short hours, (coughs) miserable weather. So these major engineering projects happen over the summer. So you can see these guys... um, the, the backing structure itself was sound, which was excellent, so we had to replace the uh, the surface and it was it's, it's been replaced with a with galvanized steel and uh, it's not welded to the backing structure there are there are bolts in fact adjustable bolts uh, because as you'll see in a moment, we needed to adjust the surface as well but you can you can see how the uh, the engineers were doing it, uh, they were replacing alternate segments at a time. And the reason for doing that is, is shown in this picture. Uh, so you can see the, the segments stripped off. And uh, our engineers built these these two things they called bowl excursion vehicles. And what they were, was a very clever design to maintain a, a horizontal working surface as it went up and down the, the parabola, parabola of the bowl. Uh, and they needed the alternate segments to put the wheels on. So that, that was the, uh, the rationale behind doing it this way. It uh, meant for a spectacular-looking uh, telescope as the project was half done. Um, it, it looked like this over the, the winter of 2002. But then in 2003, after it was all painted, and you, you can see the... Uh, the double structure that was put on in 1971. That's what the telescope looks like now. And it's, uh, it's a vastly improved scientific instrument. When it was first, the first design, that first mesh structure I showed you, the blue book, was designed to work at 151 megahertz. It's now capable of uh, working at 8 gigahertz. So it's, uh, it's basically the same structure. It shows how well engineered it was. Just to give you an example of how we were able to improve the surface, this is a hologram of the surface before the uh, the surface upgrade. The the scale here goes up to uh, I think it's 30 yeah it's 30 millimeters so about an inch just over an inch, and you can see, for example, that we've got uh, a ring of panels here that deviate from a parabola by about an inch. That's, in fact, you could trip over them. They, they were that badly set. And uh, you can see all sorts of other imperfections in the surface. After the new surface was put on, it looked like this. And we now have an RMS surface error, that is deviation from a parabola of 2 millimeters, which is, is, is excellent. We also got a new drive and control system as, as part of the, uh, uh, the upgrade. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the, the major observing uh, programs uh, that the, the Lovell Telescope still uh, does. Um, now, I understand there's at least one pulsar expert in the room, so he, he should ignore my, my layman's um, explanation of what a pulsar is. But for those of you not uh, totally familiar, a pulsar is, the, is a rotating neutron star that is the remnant of a supernova explosion for, for a massive star. Stars, more than eight solar masses. Uh, when they reach the end of their lives, they, they explode. What is left is uh, a neutron star, which is typically 1.4 solar masses, but only 10 kilometers or so in radius. So it's incredibly compressed matter. It's, it's, it's exotic matter. Uh, that's why it's called a neutron star. Uh, There are enormous magnetic fields uh, generating a neutron star, which result in these strong beams of radio emission, which act as a, a, you can see here, as a lighthouse effect. And as these beams, as the star rotates and they move towards us, we see a a pulse of emission, hence a pulsar. Now, of course, you all know these were discovered by Jocelyn Bell and Anthony Hewish at, at Cambridge in '67. Uh, But Geodrell Bank, immediately after the discovery, astronomers there uh, focused the the telescope on the pulsars, and it's been a major observing program ever since. In fact, I think it's true to say that the pulsar group at Geodrell Bank, until recently led by Andrew Line, although he's retiring at the end of this year, um, is the world-leading pulsar group anywhere in the world. I can say that because i 'm not a member of that group. My research interests lie elsewhere now when, when my mother came to George Bank, she wanted to look through the telescope, which was a, a problem. So I explained to her it was a radio telescope, and she said, Well, can I hear then <laughs> And you know, yes, you, you can hear, of course, but if, if normally you just hear a hiss uh, of the Uh, the 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 radiation and the noise from the sky but with a pulsar you can actually hear it so what I'm going to show you now or let you listen to are sounds of pulsars so this is a a fairly slow pulsar which rotates at 1.4 times per second so this is a, a star 10 kilometers in diameter rotating 1.4 times per second. Just got to think about that. Fairly impressive. Now the Vela pulsar, which is a very well-known one, actually rotates at 11 times per second. This is what that one sounds like. Well, that's Bristol rotating 11 times a second. Now the fastest known pulsar this thing called B1937 plus some other random numbers, rotates 716 times per second. These things are the most accurate clocks in the universe. And by studying them, you can learn a lot about the, uh, the nature of the neutron star. Uh, about relativistic effects. In fact, uh, Joe Taylor and a colleague, I forget his name, Taylor and Hulse, Taylor and Hulse got a Nobel Prize, uh, a second Nobel Prize in pulsars, for the discovery of gravitational radiation from a a binary pulsar. (laughs) The George Bank Pulsar Group has made many of the major discoveries in the field, including... Uh, a fantastic recent discovery that earned the Descartes Prize from the European Union. And this was the double pulsar, two pulsars orbiting each other. Uh, As I said, you've got two fantastic clocks. And this is how a double pulsar system might might form. So a a massive star explodes, as I said. Uh, Pulsar is formed, and it's, its neighbor expands, and the material starts falling on the original pulsar, speeding it up. It becomes a millisecond pulsar, like the, the fast one. And then the other star explodes. And so what you end up with is two, two pulsars rotating about, orbiting about each other. One a millisecond pulsar and one much slower because it's, it's had nothing to speed it up. So you've got two fantastic, two of nature's incredibly accurate clocks rotating around each other. All sorts of tests you can do of... Uh, the. Einstein's theory of general relativity. And the, the, the pulsar group at Jodrell have been able to demonstrate that Einstein had it right to 99.995%. But of course, being pulsar astronomers, they're not happy with that. They, they want all the telescope time on the planet um, to, uh, to, to, to push these things. And who's to say they don't deserve it because they do fantastic stuff? What they're looking for now is a pulsar rotating around a black hole because they want to push um, the the general relativity to to its absolute limit, which can only be found around a black hole. And who's to say they won't find it all breaking down then? Maybe another Nobel Prize, if, if that happens. So there was a research program that used the Lovell Telescope, all by itself. But another aspect of the activities at Jodrell were the quest for high resolution using interferometry. Now, we could separate... uh, For high resolution, you could build a massive telescope. But practically, something like the Lovell, or slightly larger, the largest movable telescopes are 100 meters, is the practical limit. So in order to get higher resolution, you take smaller telescopes or large telescopes and you separate them spatially. And Sir Martin Ryle at Cambridge showed uh, that as the Earth rotates with uh, separated telescopes, you can synthesize an aperture equivalent uh, whose diameter is equivalent to the separation of the telescopes. So this is a technique that... Uh, Jodrell Bank pursued from the early 1960s. What they did was they pioneered radio-linked interferometry. So they had this modest 25-foot radio telescope, which was portable, and they took it to strategic, very carefully chosen locations around the country uh, and used it in conjunction with the Lovell telescope. So both telescopes looked at the same object, and the, te- the information from, uh, uh, from the 25-foot was beamed back using this uh, radio transmitter on that van back to Jodrell Bank. Now, one of my, uh, my senior colleagues, Brian Anderson, uh, who is still working, this is his car, uh, and uh, he's, he was one of the pioneers of radio-linked interferometry. Hen- Henry Palmer led the group, but Brian was a student at that time. And I asked him, how, how were these uh, strategic locations carefully chosen? Well, he pointed to this pub bench. Uh, and what they did was they just went to all the very nice country pubs they could find in the Peak District, uh, where they had a direct line of sight back to Jodrell Bank. And uh, that, that, that's how they created their, their long baselines. Now, since then, this has this all developed into, the, into Merlin, uh, which I'll talk a, have a couple of slides on in a moment. But it was interferometry that put George Bank at the center of the the discovery of the nature of quasars. Now, uh, in the early 60s, there were these very bright, point-like objects that had been discovered by optical astronomers uh, that had featureless spectra. If you look at a star uh, or or a galaxy, there are all sorts of spectral lines that you see there from the various uh, atoms and molecules. Uh, but the quasar spectra, spectra were featureless, and, and they didn't know what they were. So these were um, very bright point sources, quasi-stellar objects called quasars. No idea what the nature... And, that, and, and in the early 60s, this was a, a huge topic in astronomy. Uh, what was realized that one of the brightest that was later called 3C273 was going to be occulted by the moon on August 5, 1962. And so Australian astronomers uh, used this occultation to pin down the position of this quasar because the optical astronomers were were unable to to determine positions accurately enough at that time. So this position was then made available, and at Jodrell Bank they were able to use the the radio-linked interferometers that I just showed you to actually demonstrate that the quasar wasn't a point source, this was the, the, the radio model that was produced, a core and a jet. This is a modern optical picture of the quasar 3C273. So they were able to demonstrate that these things had structure. Uh, they were also able to demonstrate that they were very distant objects. Uh, and in fact, uh, quasars really are, are at very high redshift, that is you know, halfway to the edge of the universe. Uh, they're, they're, the supermassive black holes at the at the centres of uh, of galaxies, and th- this this was a this was a huge result in the early 60s. and I'm, I'm not sure actually that Jodrell's role in this ever received uh, full attention, but uh, it, it played a crucial role. Now, quest for high resolution was not just being pursued at Jodrell Bank; it was being pursued all over the world. Of course, Martin Ryle. Uh, built the one-mile and then the five-kilometer telescope at at Cambridge, which is an east-west array. Uh, The Americans uh, built the the very large array in in New Mexico. This is where I spent nine years of my life, not actually in the desert there, but in a fairly comfortable town close by. But uh, this is an array of 27, 25-meter telescopes that can be moved up and down these railway tracks. The, The railway tracks are 35 kilometers in length. So, and what you do as you separate the telescopes, it's like a zoom lens. You, get, you can see finer detail. And I'll talk in a minute about how, what happens when you separate them as far as you can, i.e., the diameter of the Earth. In the UK, we, we have Merlin, which is an array of seven radio telescopes. You see the Lovell and the Mark II at Jodrell Bank, uh, Tabley, which is near Knutsford, Knockin near Shrewsbury. Cambridge, on the Lord's Bridge site, that's uh, a 32-meter. Uh, Darnhall, which is near Winsford. And Deford, uh, fairly close to here, actually, uh, near Worcester. Now, these telescopes are connected at the moment by radio links, but we're throwing the radio links away because they're so inefficient. Uh, in fact, we only can transmit 1% of the data that we receive uh, from, from uh, the, the universe back to George Bank because of the limitations of the, the radio links. So we're, we're putting in a fiber network, which I'll describe shortly. That's just a nice picture of the Cambridge telescope. So this is a modern picture of 3C273. That's a, a Merlin radio image, and this is a, an image from the Hubble Space Telescope. And uh, that's just a, a nice picture showing what, what you can do these days. And what these things are, supermassive black holes, uh, accreting gas, uh, these are matter pulled into the center of these these galaxies. Uh, The gas is rotating. There are huge, powerful relativistic jets uh, being thrown off uh, perpendicular to the uh, the accretion uh, material. We can actually watch this gas rotate because there's another type of object, a maser, microwave, a radio equivalent of a, of a laser, which sits in this gas, and a particular project that I've been involved in, uh, we've been able to, to measure the rotation of the gas, and therefore weigh the black hole. And we see in one particular galaxy, the black hole is 30 million solar masses. So these are really supermassive black holes. Another Major discovery at Jodrell Bank was discovered in a survey uh, using the Lovell telescope, and it turned out to be uh, another uh, result of of relativity uh, predicted by by Einstein. This was the double quasar. So it was a radio survey done, and then Dennis Walsh, who was a a scientist at Jodrell, followed it up with uh, optical observations, uh, and in this region he found the double quasar. So this is what the double quasar looks like, it's, you can see it uh, brightly there, but essentially the, the, the top and the bottom images are qua- the quasar, quasars, and this, this is a galaxy. Now what was fascinating was that the, the spectra of these quasars were identical, they were twins. And this was a, a real shock at the time, they, how, how could you have twin quasars? Uh, so close together. In fact, what it turns out, they are the same object. You're just seeing two images of it. So, th- so this is what's happening. You have a background quasar, you have an intervening galaxy, and you could see that galaxy in the picture, the third image, and here's the Earth. So the light from the quasar uh, leaves the quasar, would travel off in this direction, but is deflected by the, the mass, uh, the, the gravity generated by, by this galaxy deflected towards the Earth. And from the other side, that's deflected towards the Earth. If you trace the ray paths back, you see two images. And that, this is what's happening. Uh, there's all sorts of information, cosmological information you can infer from observations such as these. And there's now about 30 gravitational lenses known. This is a radio image of the double quasar. You can see the two quasars here, and in fact, you can see that like 273 there's a relativistic jet here uh, it's not you can 't actually see it in the image because the galaxy, which is about here, is not lined up properly with the jet, so its uh, light is not deflected it has to be aligned very accurately. Um, M81, M82 is a, it's a famous uh, pair of galaxies, M81 here, M82. Uh, they interact, and M82 is uh, suffering or undergoing a massive burst of star formation. Tens of millions of stars are being formed in a relatively short time um, cosmologically. Now, using Merlin, we're able to... Uh, uh, and interferometry, high resolution again, we're able to actually figure out what's going on. This is an optical picture of M82 from the Japanese Subaru telescope. Beautiful image. This is H-alpha, but that's all dust. The optical astronomers can't see through the dust. But just for the same reason that you can have a radio telescope near Manchester and we can see through the cloud and the rain, uh, radio astronomers can see right through the dust. And this is what the radio image of the the center of M82 looks like. What's important from this point of view is these very compact sources, which it turned out were supernovae, exploding stars. There's about 50 of them in here. If you have a lot of supernovae going off in one galaxy, that means there have to be a lot of stars being formed to evolve rapidly to, to all blow up at about the same time. So this is a characteristic of a starburst galaxy. Now, these are just point sources to Merlin, so you want higher resolution. You want a a greater zoom lens. So what you do is you look for telescopes which are spread more widely apart. And the European VLBI network is a a network of uh, 15 or 16 telescopes scattered across Europe. You can see the, uh, the Georgia Bank telescopes here. There's the 100-meter in Effelsberg. Uh, So there's some massive instruments. There's the Effelsberg telescope on the right again. Um, I'll I'll, I'll go through this. The the data, uh, we're beginning to use the Internet, but currently the data are recorded on disks sent to a central processor in in the Netherlands, and we get the, the data back to make images from. And so what happens is, with a zoom lens, you look at one of these point components... And you can see the supernova shell growing with time. And in fact, what we were able to demonstrate was that this supernova went off in the early 1960s, which unfortunately was just as interferometry was being born. It would have been great for a radio telescope to be looking at M82 as this thing exploded. But that didn't happen. Uh, this, is a, a modern, this is a 2002 image of that same, same supernova. So you can see clearly the ring of gas. Now, we couldn't see that one explode, but in 1993, another one exploded in uh, M81, which was just to the south. And radio telescopes over a 10-year period made a whole sequence of images, uh, a movie of this particular supernova. And so this is what you're seeing. So these were images, four images a year over 10 years, and the Georgia Bank telescopes were part of this network. And you can see the ring of gas from this exploding supernova uh, expanding, and you can see all sorts of structures. We're learning a lot about shock physics, uh, the, uh, the medium into which this uh, shock front is, is running uh, from, from such data. You see the canter going up in the top corner. And there's 10 years. You see how this thing grew from a, from a point source. So quite impressive that we can see these things in galaxies that are three and a half million light years away. So what about the, uh, the future? Well, as I mentioned, Merlin is, uh, is undergoing a, a major upgrade, eight, eight and a half million pound upgrade, We're essentially broadbanding it. We're getting rid of these narrowband radio links. We're putting in, or have put in, a fibre network, 650-kilometre fibre network, which is going to deliver 30 gigabits per second from each telescope. Uh, That's 210 gigabits per second flowing into Jodrell Bank. That's five times the total internet traffic of the UK. That's uh, that's fairly impressive, but it's not going to interfere with the UK's internet traffic because we have our own dedicated dark fiber network. So in fact, it's just one fiber per telescope. You can get that much information on on a single fiber. We have new receivers, new electronics, new software. And with the upgraded level telescope, this was the rationale for upgrading the telescope, it will become an integral part of of Merlin, also will carry on doing pulsars and, and other work. Uh, Merlin will be 30 times more powerful. Uh, first light is in spring 2008 and we hope to be operational in 2009. And It's really going to transform our capabilities to image these, these various types of objects and also new types of objects uh, for, for radio astronomy. And if we look a little bit further ahead, as I said at the beginning, a structure like the Lovell Telescope is 50 years old now. Probably it will get to 60. I don't know how far beyond that it will survive as a, uh, as, a, as a working scientific instrument. It will survive. It's a grade one listed building. I think it's probably the only moving grade one listed building in the country. So the University of Manchester has to keep it uh, uh, as, as a, an icon of British science for, for, at the visitor centre. But we're, we're involved, along with astronomers and engineers from 17 countries, in designing the next generation of radio instrument, the square kilometer array. This will be 200 times the collecting area of the Lovell telescope, but it won't be a monolithic telescope. It's going to consist of several thousand antennas spread over 3,000 kilometers because we want the, the zoom lens, we want to as well as see the the large-scale structure, see the small-scale structure. And it's going to have a huge field of view, many tens of times that the size of the the area of the full moon. And it's it's going to, uh, when we build the SKA, it's going to explore science goals that somebody like Lovell could never have dreamed of. He started out wanting to observe the radar echoes from meteors. With something like the square kilometer array, we're going to be exploring, hopefully, the origins of the universe, the nature of this mysterious dark matter, which uh, uh, we've recognized exists in the last few years. Look at the first stars, the first galaxies. Uncover the mysteries of magnetism. We we know very little about the origins of magnetism in the universe or or how it affects the (coughs) phenomena that we observe. We will also be able to watch Earth-like planets form And possibly, uh, we we might detect stray radiation from civilizations like our own halfway across the galaxy. The capability will be there. Whether those civilizations exist is is another matter. The uh, the telescope's going to be located in either Australia or South Africa. There's about 140 million euros of R&D around the world at the moment, with the UK playing a major role. And in fact, the global headquarters of the SKA team will move to the University of Manchester to Jodrell Bank in January of next year. It's a major coup for not only the university but for UK astronomy. So, Jodrell is going to remain at the centre of radio astronomy uh, for decades to come. Now, I just want to give you an idea of what the Square Kilometre Array might look like. So this is an animation that has uh, just been put together. It's, uh, it's just emerged. So this is a 4x4 a driving on the left, because they do that in both Australia and South Africa, up to the array. Now the scale's a bit wrong here, because these dishes, we think, should be about 12 meters in diameter this is the core of the array where we expect to have over half the collecting area so in this core there are about two and a half thousand antennas in this animation so here, right at the center is the is a one kilometer core and in the in right in the middle there are things called aperture arrays which will have a a bird's-eye view of the whole sky at low frequencies it's a different technology to the dishes. So as you come out, you see more stations uh, scattered across a continent, and it doesn't show you which continent because we don't choose the site until 2010. So finally, I just want to show you um, a few pictures from the, the celebration that occurred at uh, Jodrell on October the 5th and 6th. We entered the Guinness Book of Records again, but this time as the world's largest cinema screen. Uh, we, we won a 35,000 pound grant from the Royal, Mechanical, Royal Institute of Mechanical Engineers to uh, rent some projection equipment, the sort of stuff you see at pop concerts and on Buckingham Palace. And uh, this was used with a laser light show to protect, project images of the construction of the telescope, early days of the space race, and astronomy uh, pictures and, and movies and animations onto the screen. It was a fantastic night. It was really cold, though. But we had uh, 4,000 people there over over two nights watching this. So these are some of the pictures. Uh, I can't really show you a movie. That didn't come out too well uh, because of the exposure times. But uh, some of these stills look good. So this this is Merlin... And these are spinning telescopes spinning around uh, on, on the screen there. And this, this was how we ended the evening. Uh, telling people what, what they were there watching. Caused a traffic jam on the, the road to the south of Jodrell as uh, people who didn't pay got to see the show. So Sir Bernard Lovell's 94 and is going strong. He gave the best speech of the day at the celebration of the, uh, the 50th anniversary of the telescope. Thank you for listening.